How we doing? Good? Awesome. Well, I'm like giddy this morning because um, I love Christmas. So if you are the kind of person who thinks that Christmas is one day a year, um, I'm not your guy. If you're the kind of person who thinks that like celebrating Christmas is kind of a December 1st to December 25th kind of thing, I'm also not your guy. So my wife's birthday, Bree's birthday, is on October 30th. And so October 31st is the first day of Christmas. And we celebrate Christmas all the way through the end of Greek Orthodox Christmas in the middle of January. So, so we will be celebrating Christmas for like a full uh, two and a half months. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, because I like Christmas and I think that it's fun and so does Bree. But I also have come to believe that what we're thinking about around the Advent season is probably the most theologically significant part of our life with God, um, short of like the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. The incarnation and the Advent season are so critically important for how we think about uh, who Jesus is and what we're doing with this thing that we call the church and how we're supposed to be in the world Having an understanding that God, the God of the universe, the God who created everything through Christ and who sustains everything and has given you every breath that you have and has knit together on the molecular level, everything in existence came to earth as a vulnerable human baby is one of the most offensive ideas in human history. Do you realize that? And so when we do this every year, when we do the Advent thing, you know, it's really not, um, it's not about tradition per se. It's not about pomp. It's about acknowledging that for the full weight that it should bear in our lives. You know, when we do the reading and we do the candle thing and we set aside four weeks every year to do this, some of us, I don't know about you, I grew up in a church tradition where we did all those things and, and we talked about the significance of them, but I never fully grasped exactly the gravity of what's going on around the Christmas season in our, in our lives of worship um, until I became an adult. Has anyone else had that experience? Or maybe it just kind of like hit you at some point, like, oh, this is why we do this. And so, you know, the candle thing, even if you think that's kind of weird, just think about this as we gather for the next four Sundays. You know, throughout the history of the church, for the 2,000 years of church history, um, lighting these candles that are representative of different things that we'll talk about each week, like, that's been a, a, a tradition that's knit into the tradition that we participate in. And so if, if that like wigs you out a little bit to think about tradition, think about it this way. Each week when we light that candle and we gather together, we're actually doing that in solidarity with millions and millions of other followers of Jesus all over the world who are doing the exact same thing. And so we're actually stepping into a practice together that kind of like unites us across time and space. And we're also doing this in solidarity with the historic church who have done this for thousands of years to celebrate, like anticipating the coming of Jesus. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so even, I mean, just say a word about like 
these candles, this is kind of a funny thing, but you know, in the vineyard, we talk about the kingdom of God a lot. You hear us talk about the kingdom of God if you've been here for more than one week. And purple is, is, a, is a biblically symbolic color of royalty. And so the reason that these candles are purple is actually because we're celebrating the kingdom of God, the activity of God coming into the world in the person of Jesus. Did you know that? And then this candle right here is pink because this is the candle. It's often called the shepherd's candle. It represents joy, and pink is the liturgical color for joy. So throughout church history, pink has sort of symbolized joy as people have put together worship services, whether they're simple like ours or elaborate in the high church traditions. That's, that's just you know a little bit of a touch point for us with people who are celebrating the same thing um, kind of all over the place. So I'll just, I'll just be really open with you. We're at risk of going long today because um, this is something that I have thought a, a long time about. You know, even as we prepare for Advent, I'm gonna send you some wonderful things this week in the newsletter that you can use to sort of like um, just focus your heart in on what God's doing in us during this season. Vineyard USA has a wonderful Advent devotional that we've put together and our Sunday readings are actually gonna come from that. Uh, there are a couple of resources that I love. Um, there's a wonderful Advent devotional called The Anticipated Christ by one of my favorite teachers, Brian Zond. I've been reading it every year for the last three or four years. Um, there's a, a wonderful book by one of the church fathers called On the Incarnation by St. Athanasius the Great. And so if you want to challenge yourself and read something hard, it's only about 80 pages long, but it's one of the most beautiful defenses of this idea that, that Jesus, fully God and fully man, came into the world to make the kingdom of God available to people. And, and I'll be honest, one of the reasons that I think this is so important too is because the incarnation of Christ, the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man, is one of the hardest things for us to understand as humans. And so for that reason, it's one of the core central doctrines of the church that has consistently come under attack throughout the whole history of the church. And if you make a list of all the people who, who were heretical teachers— in the early church. And we don't talk about heretics and heresy very often, but what I mean is not just stuff that, that like made you feel bad or stuff you didn't like, but actually like people who are denying a core central tenet of what it means to follow Jesus. The incarnation is the one thing that has most consistently come under attack throughout all of human history or all of church history. This idea that, that somehow Jesus as a human person also contains all the fullness of God. That's so hard to understand. And so, so long, so consistently, people have tried to sort of explain their way around that and come up with other solutions and say, maybe he was just a great prophet and he wasn't actually God, or maybe he was only God. And the fact that he looked like a person was just an illusion. And, and we're just here to wrap our arms around the mystery of the fact that Jesus was fully a human being and experienced life the way you and I do and contained all the fullness of God. Isn't that like a profound, mind-bending idea? So that's really what we're going to think about throughout this series. So this series, we've called it The Bright Valley. 
Uh, it's actually a series that was provided to us by our friends at a couple other vineyard churches. And so I just want to give them a shout out right at the beginning. So the vineyard in Campbellsville, Kentucky, and the vineyard in Evanston, Illinois. Two great vineyard pastors, Adam Russell and, and Ted Kim, uh, put this series together last year. And they made it available to the whole vineyard movement this year for us to use. And, you know, we've been through a lot in the last month or so. And so our teaching team just said, why don't we do that? That sounds good. <laughs> They've got the outlines for us, and we can put our own, you know, meat on the bones, so to speak. And um, we're we're really excited to go through this. You know, we live in a world where we experience some of the highest highs and the lowest lows that life has to offer us, don't we? You know, there's the arrival of a new baby in the world, watching a breathtaking sunrise or sunset. Have you ever been to the mountains or to the beach? the beauty of romantic love, the joy of deep friendships that sustain us for decades. Those are things that remind us of like the profound goodness of God, aren't they? But we also experience a life that's just inundated by heartbreak from time to time. The loss of a good friend, the loss of, of a loved one, of a spouse, Poverty, financial ruin, violence, war, unexplained sickness, persistent medical issues that we can't figure out and we can't solve. We live in this complicated valley between the, the zenith of joy and just the deepest depths of depraved human experience, don't we? And we also live in the valley between Jesus coming into the world at the first Christmas and the return of Christ, where we have in the scriptures the promise that all things will be put to right. And so what we, what we want to reinforce and restate over and over and over again throughout this series is that even though we live in this valley and it's difficult to navigate and it's a hard thing to think about sometimes, the valley is bright because of what God is doing in our lives, because of what Jesus has done for his people, and because of what God will do in the future. And so this season of Advent is kind of associated with these four traditional themes. We're going to be talking about hope, love, joy, and peace. And those four things light the way for us. And so as we talk about what it is to live in the bright valley, that's what we're talking about, is what does it look like to live a life that's guided by these four beautiful things that God sort of works into the dough of our lives like yeast. So this week, we're going to begin by looking at hope. And, you know, some of our church family have been through a lot in recent weeks and months. And so I just want to reiterate one important thing about hope, that hope... Um, is not a thin, pretend kind of hope. It's not the kind of hope that demands that one who grieves sets aside their real experience of life in favor of some kind of a disguise. This is hope that comes from God, and hope from God is a deeper and much more all-encompassing sort of thing. Our friends at the Bible Project say this about hope. Biblical hope is based on a person which makes it different from optimism, 
Optimism is about choosing to see in any situation how circumstances could work out for the best. But biblical hope isn't focused on circumstances. In fact, hopeful people in the Bible often recognize that there is no evidence things will get better, but choose to hope anyway. Have you ever met someone who was so optimistic that it felt false? Like, things are bad. They're just objectively bad. And, and maybe that person just refuses to acknowledge how bad things are. Or they're just constantly sidestepping difficult circumstances with this optimism that just is almost like, would you just read the room? Because this is not what we're experiencing right now together. Have you ever experienced a moment like that? And, and what I just want to say is that hope is not optimism. Hope is not optimism. Because when push comes to shove, optimism will fail. Because eventually, even the most devoted optimist will come to realize that the ways that they're trying to reimagine and bend circumstances to seem optimistic just isn't true. The beautiful thing about the scriptures is that they acknowledge the depths of, of suffering and trial. And man, read the Psalms, you know? And there are, there are two Psalms in particular. I think it's Psalm 32 and Psalm 88, but please don't check, that, that do not end on a hopeful note. You know, most of these Psalms that go and they, and, you know, oh God, you know, kill all my enemies and I'm so destitute and whatever, that kind of thing. And most of them then kind of end on a high note where it's like, you know, but you, oh God, will be glorified and, you know, your name will be set up and on and on. And there are actually two Psalms that just end like really sad and bad. And I actually think that those are kind of reserved, like in our, in our sort of liturgy of worship as we go through life for those moments where it's like, God, this is so bad. And we can actually just leave it there because the God of hope by the spirit, if we, if we come before him and we worship him and we acknowledge him, will work hope deep into our souls, like in spite of our hopelessness. And so we actually don't need to make up for it with, with false, thin optimism. Are you still with me? Okay. So before we start talking about this, this hope thing, I just want to take a couple minutes to talk about the entire Bible um, leading up to the point that we're going to, that we're going to look at. So, you know, we talk a lot at the Vineyard about the kingdom of God. I already said a couple things about the kingdom of God uh, because it was Jesus' central message. You know, we hear the gospel preached a lot of different ways. People talk about what Jesus came to do in, in numerous ways, right? I mean, you could probably think of a handful just off the top of your head. But when Jesus had the opportunity to preach the gospel, you know, Mark chapter one, Jesus went around preaching, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. That's the gospel as Jesus preached it. So it was about the kingdom of God coming into the world. And we also talk about how the kingdom of God isn't a place or a group of people. It isn't heaven. It isn't the church. Uh, the kingdom of God is an action. It's a thing that God is doing in real time, in real life, intervening in the affairs of people. 
That's what the kingdom of God is. And so the prophets in the Old Testament, so if you look at the first two-thirds of your Bible with all the wacky, weird, hard-to-understand stuff, they actually knew this. You know, that, that Advent devotional that I told you I love reading by Brian Zahn, one of the things that he said to, this morning in the reflection was this, just this reminder that the Bible is not an encyclopedia of God facts. It's one big story about God coming into the world through the person of Jesus and executing his authority through this thing that we call the kingdom of God. So, so when you think about the Bible, don't think about um, world book, Think about the Lord of the Rings. Because it's a, it's a grand narrative that is unfolding over the course of generations and thousands of years and just little bits of this understanding of what's to come to pass being dropped into people's minds and hearts and lives until it comes to fulfillment. It's not a list, it's, it's not a, the Bible isn't a resource for you to, you know, oh, I, like, I feel sad today, and so I'm going to look up some things about feeling sad, or, you know, I'm not sure, like, wh- whatever, like, what to think about, um, you know, parenting, and so I'm going to go to the parenting section and read a little bit about parenting. It can be useful to teach us about those things, but it's a story, that informs the way that we live into those things. And so these prophets in the Old Testament, they had like bits of understanding about this kingdom of God coming into the world. And Jesus is the full fulfillment of that. But some of the minor prophets that are hard to pronounce, they had a little bit less understanding of what that was gonna look like. And then some of the other prophets had a little bit more understanding of what that was gonna look like. There's one prophet in particular, his name was Habakkuk or Habakkuk, however you want to say it, you're wrong. He just had this little understanding about what it might look like. And if you read his little book, basically what he says is, God, we know that you saved the people of Israel from Egypt. Would you do something like that again? That's it. That's, that's really all he has to say. He doesn't have a whole lot more, like, foreknowledge or insight about what's going to happen other than just, God, we know that you did this. Um, Would you do it again for us? And then as you kind of move through the prophets, there are other prophets that have a little bit more insight. You know, Ezekiel has a really cool book that's just crazy. There's all kinds of crazy stuff going on in Ezekiel. We should read it together sometime if you've never read it. And basically what happens is he kind of has this vision of what it might look like if the kingdom of God came into the world. And so he knows a little bit about God pouring out his spirit on people. And he knows a little bit about a new temple that's going to come, you know, that we understand to be the church. And he has some ideas about what some of this stuff might mean. But then there are two prophets in particular, Isaiah and Jeremiah. And Isaiah and Jeremiah have a very clear understanding of what's going to happen. And the reason that we're taking this whole series from Isaiah is because Isaiah is often referred to as the fifth gospel because of how detailed and precise his his prophetic writing was about the person of Jesus who was to come. If there's one book in the Old Testament that makes things clear about Jesus Christ, it's Isaiah. And so as we sort of prepare for the coming of Jesus, we're like participating in this pattern 
that the people of Israel were a part of for so long where they would read this prophetic writing and they would see things that were to come to pass and it would actually cause hope to rise up inside of them. And so that's what we wanna do together this morning as we read this passage that Deb already read for us this morning is, is look at these things that Isaiah is promising will come to pass and see how do those actually come to bear in our real lives as we prepare to celebrate Jesus coming into the world. Does that make sense? Good. So our main passage today, it's coming from Isaiah. It's the one we heard read uh, as we gathered this morning. And I'm just going to read it to you again real quick. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, heard concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now often, the first week of Advent, we read a different passage from this. And so if you're really familiar with this, you may have come expecting, you know, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light, right? And that's a wonderful passage, and we could have read that one. But there are three things in here that I want to draw our attention to this morning that are a little bit unique, but I think they're super hopeful. The first one is that hope is like a mountain. The second one is that we are learning to walk in the way of Jesus. And the third one is that God is going to settle all of our conflicts, we actually have those three things as a, as a promise in this passage, that hope is like a mountain, that we're learning to walk in the way of Jesus, and that God is going to settle all of our conflicts. So in this passage, the, the prophet says that hope is like a mountain. He says, in days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All nations shall stream to it. We're just going to stop on this for a second, and I want to give you a little bit of context for what the prophet is talking about. Has anyone in this room ever been to Israel before? Ruthie, Mary. Cool. So you would know, if you've been there, I have not been there, that Jerusalem sort of sits on a mountain, but it is not the highest mountain in the area. You can actually look out from Jerusalem and see other higher mountains around it. And so the prophet is clearly doing something here that's not literal. He's not saying, you know, the mountain of the Lord Jerusalem, this mountain is going to grow and become taller than the rest of the mountains around it. What he's saying is that each of these mountains in the ancient Near East were places of worship. So if there was an ancient God to be worshipped, if there was a, a deity or an idol, it would be set up on one of these mountains, and people would go to the mountaintop to worship that idol. And so what, what the prophet is promising us is actually that the kingdom of God, that the mountain of the Lord, will be raised up as like the main mountain where people go to worship. 
So he's saying, you know, right now there are all these things that people worship, you know, money and power and greed and self-advancement and industry and, you know, I mean, all these things, right, that people worship. But in the last days, he says, the mountain of the Lord will be raised up. And he says, people will stream to the mountain of the Lord. So picture like water running backwards up a mountain is kind of the picture that he's painting for us here. And the reason that I, I want to point some of this out is because the Bible describes that the kingdom of God will be lifted up and will be like this mountain above all the hills. And there's this really harmful idea in the American church that says that the church today is to be like Israel in the day of the prophets and, and like the people in the story of Noah and the great flood. And fewer and fewer and fewer people will believe God until there's just a little itty bitty remnant left. And then God's going to get them all out. The problem with that is that the Bible teaches us the opposite thing. The prophets and Jesus himself teach us that the kingdom of God increases on the earth to the end of the age when it is fully consummate and God remakes the heavens and the earth and a new garden city comes down from heaven and every tear will be wiped away. And, and, and all that, all that comes to pass because the kingdom of God increases to the end of the age. So what we actually have here in Isaiah is Isaiah is saying, look, the kingdom of God is going to be lifted up as a hope to all people that people will stream to. Not just like one or two people will like make their way there or just happen upon it or, you know, it's, it's like people are coming down from the mountain or anything like that, right? The context is that this thing is increasing. And for the last five years, I've had the opportunity to work at Indian Ridge Golf Club south of Oxford on Route 27, and it's been so much fun because it's kind of the main venue where I get to share my faith because working here full-time as a pastor, I spend a lot of time with people who are already Christians and you know, working with people in the city where maybe there are opportunities to pray for people here and there, but I can just kind of go for it at the golf course. And can I tell you something really interesting about doing that? As I've paid attention to sort of the ideas that are in people's heads as I share faith with them, there's kind of like an underlying air of exclusivity that they've understood from the church. Like, because I don't behave in this way, or because I can't seem to control my desires, or because I try to do the right thing, and I just consistently do the wrong thing, that, like, I'm not cut out for being part of the people of God. And this is actually not an idea that they invented. It's been reinforced to them by church people over time. They've actually been made to feel that way by friends and by family members and by people who just don't really seem to have a grasp on the fact that this thing is increasing and they're actually being invited to be a part of it. And, you know, one conversation that stands out in particular, it was a Miami fraternity dad's weekend. And so there were all these, oh, by the way, shout out to Miami University for winning the MAC. Um, that's crazy. So anyway, there's a Miami fraternity dad's weekend. You know, the dad's, and the frat kids just fled to the golf course on those weekends, and um, it's just uh, so much fun. And 
I got into a conversation with one of these dads. He had, I was working there by myself, and so he had come up to the bar and ordered a drink. I was making his drink, and he started asking me, you know, is this what you do for, for work? And I was like, well, it's actually not. I just do this for the free golf. And um, I started telling him a little bit about what I do. And he just immediately, like, closed himself off. He just saw this thing happen where it was like, when I told him, yeah, I'm a pastor at the Vineyard Church, he was like, first of all, I've never heard of, like, Vineyard Church. That sounds really weird. And you're a pastor, so that can't be good. And it just stopped. The whole thing stopped. And I just kind of, like, didn't really care what this guy thought. And so I just kind of put my finger on it. And I was like, hey, I noticed that we were having this really good conversation. And then as soon as I told you that, um, you, like, became different. Can you, t- can you tell me a little bit about that? And it was just shame. Like, I mean, without, without saying the word, I mean, this guy just described to me like all of the shame that he has in his life. And, and it, was, it was heartbreaking because, you know, it had come from his family of origin and he went to a Catholic school and it came from the nuns at the Catholic school and the whole, the whole thing, you know? And I just had an opportunity to say to him, man, listen, like, I hear you. And that shame is real. And you're actually going to have to like work that out. For the sake of the people close to you, you owe it to them to work that out. But also, um, you, you might have the wrong idea about like what God is about and the invitation that you're receiving. And so I just got to share with him, look, this isn't for an exclusive few. This is actually something that's increasing, that I believe is increasing for the rest of human history. And you're super invited. And, you know, it was like, something kind of cracked a little bit. And he started to think, you know, he'd known some people with some pretty wacky ideas that, that are espoused over Thanksgiving dinner and so forth. You guys don't know anything about that. But he, he like, started to open up a little bit because somebody let him know, hey, this is actually for you, and it's for everyone. See, that hope is like a mountain that way, lifted up that all people can see. And everybody's invited, like everybody. And hope is like a mountain in the way that, you know, we have this thing to look forward to. Because everybody's invited up on the mountain because it's lifted up for all people to see, we have this hope to hold on to of reunion with the people we've lost. We have a hope to hold on to of no more holidays alone because of the life of the church. We have a hope to hold on to of, of hope in light of dark and difficult circumstances. We don't have to try to fit ourselves into an optimistic mold anymore and try to convince ourselves that things are better than they are because things can be really bad and we can still hold on to the hope of Jesus Christ at the same time. Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. What a profound prayer. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This, that's the mountain of the Lord that Isaiah is writing about that people stream to. 
because there's this promise that if we participate in the life of Jesus, he's going to put his spirit in us. And that spirit will fill us with all joy and peace and believing so that we may abound in hope by his power. So the prophet continues on and he talks about learning to walk in his paths. That, that God's going to teach us to walk in his paths. One of my favorite writers, he's an English poet, an Anglican priest who was born in Nigeria. Super interesting guy. His name's Malcolm Gite. Look him up on YouTube. If you liked Mr. Rogers, you'll like Malcolm Gite. So most of his YouTube videos are just him like sitting at his desk in his study, smoking a pipe, and he reads poetry. And most of it is about like, you know, the English countryside. It's really nice. But he says, we are all, I'm going to throw a couple of Greek words in here. We are all logoi. We're little words. That's what that means, little words. In the mouth of the logos, the great word, capital W, meaning Jesus. Right now, we're all being spoken into being. Each one of us is an unfinished poem that God is speaking right now. Isaiah promises us that we are in process. If you look at these three things that we're talking about, people streaming to the mountain of the Lord, God teaching us to walk in his ways, and God resolving our conflict, those are all processes, aren't they? They aren't things that are finished and done. So the prophet actually promises us that we're in process. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Part of the hope that we hold is that as we wait for Jesus to put all things right, just as the ancient Israelites awaited Messiah, we are learning his ways and, and he is teaching us to walk the narrow way of Jesus. And again, just a word about exclusivity. You know, when people read the narrow path passages, they think that that's actually about there being few people who walk the way of Jesus. That's actually not about the number of people who follow Jesus. That's about how hard it is to follow Jesus. And, and maybe it's just because I love the church. And I love, like, the whole church. But I think following Jesus is really hard. And I think there are a lot of people who are doing the hard work to follow Jesus. And so rather than reading passages about the way being narrow and saying, see, that means there's just a few of us who are doing it right. We should really think a narrow path is hard to walk. And from time to time, I know I fall off. I don't know about you. And so when I hear this, you know, he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths, what I think is that it's impossible to follow Jesus without the help of the Holy Spirit. But he's teaching us. Like he's actually doing us the, 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 the service of helping us learn what it looks like to, to love people well and to be kind to people and to partner with God in, in seeing the kingdom come into the earth. And so, you know, working as a pastor, I've had so many hard conversations with people where they just think that this whole Christian life is a struggle and there's little hope for them to ever grow in their life with God because they struggle to pray or read the Bible or even just consistently make good choices. And I often ask people like, well, have you, have you thought about praying about that? 
And most of the time, people look at me like I've said, have you thought about doing nothing? Because that's what we have in our minds. That's what we think that prayer is about is, you know, just, well, have you thought about just putting that off for another day? And when I say that, what I'm saying is that the God of hope will fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you're hearing this talk about hope and you're thinking like, "Ah, that even sounds kind of hollow to me because I don't have a lot of hope right now. I get it. I hear you. And that's real. But also, that prayer. God wants to fill you with hope. Athanasius the Great, this is probably the last like thing that I'll nerd out about. Athanasius the Great has probably become my favorite person from church history. So he, he lived in like the third century, and he wrote this little book that I mentioned called On the Incarnation. And Athanasius vehemently defended the idea that Jesus was fully God and fully man from people in the church who insisted on abandoning this idea for his entire life. He was exiled to the desert. He was physically beaten. He was separated from his family and friends. He was removed from his official post in the church because he stood on this idea that God came in Christ, fully divine and fully human. And he, he writes in this little book, he says, for God has cr- not only created us from nothing, but he has also granted us by the grace of the word to live a life according to God. And he goes on to say that human beings were themselves corruptible by nature, but escaping their natural state of of grace, or by the grace of participating in the word before being tempted by evil. And, And all that means, because that's a whole bunch of just baloney, right? Is that when we participate in the life of Jesus, when we set ourselves on the rock of being people who will read Jesus' words in the Gospels and take them seriously and try to live a life the way that Jesus taught us to live our lives, God actually makes us new and he helps us live that life. It's this process of becoming more and more like Jesus that's unfolding over the course of our entire lives. When we read Luke chapter 1, which comes just before the birth of Jesus. Um, It talks about the birth of John the Baptist, who Jesus called the greatest of the prophets, but who was also his cousin. So, you know, check the nepotism policy. But he, he, when he was born, his father, named Zechariah, uh, sings a song. And it's a beautiful song. If you read the end of Luke chapter 1, His father, Zechariah, sings this song over him before he's born. And in the song, he actually says a few things about Jesus as well. And one of the things he says in Luke chapter 1, 78 and 79, as part of this song, I'm not going to sing it to you because the tune is lost to time. But because of the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And I love those words from Zechariah because they kind of connect these two ideas. So he's guiding our feet. He's showing us how to walk. And he's actually showing us how to walk in a particular way, into the way of peace. And so this last thing from the prophet, he, he's, he writes, that God shall judge between the nations and arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, 
neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This last part of the passage talks about our hope that God will put to rest all conflict between people and people groups and fully reign as the king of kings, as the prince of peace. And, and I just want to tell you, you know, there, the, the world of Christian preaching is rife with Christians who root against peace. Who look at conflict in the world, who look at interpersonal conflict, and they say this is good, and this is ordained by God, and this is something that should be happening in the earth. And I'm just here to tell you that if we worship the Prince of Peace, watch out for teachers who who discourage peace. Because what the prophet says is the exact opposite. He says, in the time that we are living in, this process is unfolding. Not, not later. As we learn to walk like Jesus, as we stream to the mountain of hope, God is teaching us to be people of peace in a violent world. And so when you see people root against peace, run. Because that moment when Cain, east of Eden, turned his sickle that was meant to cultivate and tend the earth into a bloody weapon of war was a moment when humanity went down the wrong road. Because these people were farmers. They were given a mandate to tend the earth, to cultivate it, and to subdue it. And what they did was they took their farming tools and they turned on each other. And the call from the prophet here is to return to be people who cultivate God's purposes in the earth. Chiefly among them, peace. So, when the prophet says that God will judge between nations and settle disputes for many people, we need to be sure that we're thinking about this in a particular way. God wants to bring peace, not just in the wider sense in our world, he wants to bring peace between us. And, and this is the last thing I'll say this morning is just that, you know, in this time of gathering with family and gathering with friends and being with people, like, without a doubt, um, conflict surfaces, doesn't it? Between us and our families, between us and acquaintances, we hear stuff over the dinner table that we don't like, we get frustrated with people, and... I just want to tell you that, you know, God wants to help you work on that. I, I, I know that that's simple, but I think it's profound that the God who made the whole universe cares about your relationships with people. And when the scriptures say that he judges between people, what it means isn't that he's bringing judgment against one person and not the other. What we're saying is that he's making wise decisions about conflict between people and relationships between nations. God is the only wise king. And so that's the promise, is, is just that God makes peace between people, even at the holidays. So with that, um, we're going to move toward closing, because I think I've used up all my time, and then some. But I just want to read, um, if, if you could, would you stand with me? And I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. And I'm going to read this passage again from Romans. Because I think that's a prayer 
that the Holy Spirit wants to work in our hearts. And I actually think it's something that he's inviting us to respond to this morning. So we're going to have our prayer team in the back. And um, I'm going to read it, and we'll just hold the quiet for a minute. And I think God actually wants to bring some things to mind for us that are, that are hopeless, that are joyless, that are without peace. Um, and, and whether it's just in the next few moments as I pray or you want to make your way to the back and get some prayer, uh, I, think, I think we should actually you know, lean into those things that, that the Holy Spirit brings to our minds. So I'm just going to pray this again, and then we're going we're gonna to hold the quiet for a minute. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we set ourselves on hope this morning. The hope for your return, the hope for what you're doing in the world right now, the hope that you've given us for the ways that your kingdom is coming into the world. We press into hope right now together. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just bring to mind areas of our lives where you want to administer that hope. And I pray that you'd bring it with power right now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.